1: Praise God. Praise God for His goodness and His grace and His mercy to us in the midst of this Advent season. Anyone thankful this morning? Come on, anybody grateful this morning for Jesus, His love, his, His life, His sacrifice? Thank you, DP Kids, and again, thank you, DP Worship, for leading us today. We thank God for your ministry and are just a blessed congregation and grateful for the work of God among all generations. You know, one of our core values here at our church is to mold the foundation Of many generations, and it's always awesome not just having uh, young people um, present in that sense of the term, but actually lead us in worship, and that's what they're able to do today, and we're grateful for that. If you have a Bible, I want you to grab that Bible with me, and we're going to go to Matthew chapter 1 in just a few moments. I want to welcome those that are streaming live. If you are new with us also today in any capacity, thank you for being with us. We are in week two of a series called... Lights, everybody say lights, lights, and uh, lights are abounding in this season, right? In the Christmas season, and Jesus in John chapter 1 is called the light of the world. He entered into the world and the darkness cannot overcome the light that is Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, I want to remind you, you can also find this sermon card as well on any digital platform, so our website or Facebook or uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter as well. To follow along with today's message. I want to give you just a bit of clarification to tell you ahead of time, today is going to be a bit nerdy. It's going to be a bit nerdy, but you got to remember something about the person standing before you is, I am a nerdy nerd, if you hadn't figured that out. And I mean that respectfully about myself and all nerds in the congregation but I am a nerd. I love to learn. And I don't just preach to you this way today, just to preach to you this way. I share with you this way because we have a core value as a church. And one of the core values of our church is maturity journey. Everybody say that with us, say maturity journey. What that means is that we are learners. As disciples, we are committing ourselves to learn, right? A value we have is to mature. So one point of clarification for you this morning. I don't study to become intellectual. I study to be intimate. I study to be intimate. And the more we learn about the person of Christ, the more intimate we become with the person of Christ. The more we learn about the God revealed in Scripture, the more we can become intimate with the God revealed in Scripture. As disciples, we are learners, right? You've got to remember, lovers are always learners. To say I love a spouse means I'm going to learn about that spouse. To say I love the Lord means I'm going to set out to learn about that Lord. And we must remember that. And and you say, why? Well, this series, Lights, we're not just trying to, myself and Pastor Chad, trying to give you new stuff, okay? Where you think, well, I've never seen that before in Advent, or I've never seen that in Luke 2, or seen that in Matthew chapter 1. No, no. We want to present to you the glory of who God is in the face of Jesus Christ so that you can more personally know him, that you can grow in right relationship with him and intimacy with him. But in order to do that, we have to seek after him. The Bible says he will be found by those that seek after him. So he doesn't just give it to us. It's something that has to be sought. We have to seek out. We have to seek out truth, the person of Jesus. Now, with that being said, how many of you have ever ventured before at any point in your life to read through the Bible in a year? You've ever done that before? Just show of hands. You said, you know what? I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. How many of you have ever, let me say it this way, um, sped through certain parts of the Bible? Uh, Leviticus, uh, begats, all the genealogies, right? On the days of the genealogy reading, Let's turn to Matthew chapter 1, and let's read the genealogy of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus. Now, if you open your Bible there, you're going to see that none of you have highlights in those first 16 verses. None of you do. None of you have notes off to the side. None of you have great teeming revelation that blows off the pages. We normally take the genealogy of a person, and we blow right past it. But as we look at the genealogy of Jesus today, let us be reminded that all scripture, everybody say all scripture, all is God-breathed, meaning it's inspired of God, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, and it's useful for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, prepared for every good work. Did you know that God even inspired the genealogies? Do you know that even the genealogies are able to transform our life because they're a part of Scripture? They are God, breathe. The title of today's message I've entitled is Creator Becomes Creature. Creator Becomes Creature. Matthew chapter 1, begin with me in verse 1. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, descended of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. That's key. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. So Often people say Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Some of your translations do, do not give the name actual Bathsheba. We'll talk about that in a minute. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham was the father of Ahaz, Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh was the father of Ammon, Ammon was the father of Josiah, Josiah was the father of Jehoiakim and his brothers, born at the time of exile to Babylon. And after the Babylonian exile, Jehoiakim was the father of Shealtel, Shealtel was the father of Zerubbabel, Notice this, Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of my favorite name in the genealogy. Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of my second favorite name, Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathon, Mathon the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Jesus, who's called the Messiah. Now, when you read that, can't you just see all the revelation jumping off the page, right? Well, for me, when I read it, I don't see it initially till I begin to study it, till I really begin to discover something very beautiful about the genealogy. Remember, every page of God's Word reveals more of who God is, even the begats. First thing I see from the genealogy of Jesus, if you're taking notes today, number one is that Jesus is not a fairy tale. Jesus is not a fairy tale. The genealogy of Jesus, church, reminds us that Jesus is not a fairy tale. You need to understand something. The New Testament starts off with a family tree, not with the words, once upon a time. There are too many believers walking the earth today acting like there's a possibility that the New Testament that we hold kicks off with the words once upon a time. It doesn't. Now let me give you some context of why it's so bold for Matthew to start the New Testament with a genealogy. In Jewish tradition, the genealogy was a huge, huge deal. What do you mean? If you wanted to buy or sell property in the first century, you had to show your genealogy. If you wanted to go buy property from another landowner, if you wanted to sell your property to another landowner, you didn't go and get a loan. You didn't go to the bank and show cash. You had to present your genealogy. Why? This is how the Jews actually protected the allotment of the land to the 12 tribes of Israel. So for you to buy land, you had to prove that you were having the right to that land so that you could buy it. You had to show you were from the tribe that was allotted that specific land. And so it was time to buy the land, you said, with your genealogy. I belong to the tribe of Asher. I belong to the tribe of Judah. And you showed your genealogy. Also, if you wanted to be a priest, you couldn't come to your priest and say, I feel called by God to be a priest in the temple. It didn't work that way. You had to be spe- specifically from the line of Aaron. If you were not born into the line of Aaron, you could not be a priest. You had no ability To do what you wanted to do. You must show your genealogy. So think about this. One of the easiest ways to expose a poser. One of the easiest ways to expose a pretender in Jewish tradition was via... The genealogy. If you were afraid that someone was going to expose a pretender that you had been following for three and a half years, a pretender who acted like he was the Messiah, who acted like he was the Son of God, in which you were following as a disciple, you would not kick off your book with a genealogy for every Levite and scientific person on the planet to be able to see whether or not he really was who he said he was. It would be the last thing that you would do in kicking off your gospel. It could be proven. Somebody would take the genealogy of Matthew 1, they would go to the temple, they would pull out the genealogy of Jesus and say, you are a liar. That is not the genealogy of Jesus, of Joseph and Mary. That is not, in fact, his parents at all. Now, you've got to understand, before Matthew chapter 1 was written, there was 400 years of silence. We call it the pregnant prophetic pause. God went silent. The word of the Lord was rare. There was no communication from Malachi to the entrance of the Savior. God goes quiet. And the first words out of the mouth of God are the begats. The genealogy of Jesus. Now this is a bold move on Matthew's part. Why is it a bold move? Because it can be proven. It can be proven that Jesus was or wasn't who he said he was. Here's what that means to you and me today. You ready? Your faith in Jesus is based upon a fact, not fiction. Your faith in the divine Son of God is based upon not fairy tale, but upon proven historical accuracy, historical fact. Matthew says, you want proof? I'll give you proof. Let's start here. We're not ashamed. You take it, shoot holes in it, do what you want to do. We are not ashamed of Jesus the Messiah. Jesus was not a myth. Jesus was the divine Son of God who lived, died, and was raised from the dead and 40 days later ascended to the Father and from there makes intercession for all of us. Jesus' genealogy shows that Jesus is not a fairy tale. Number two, it also shows that God is a promise keeper. The genealogy of Jesus shows that God is a promise keeper. Did you know that God loves to be known as a promise keeper? Did you know God loves to be known as the one who makes and keeps promises? Now we all live in a fallen world, and in a fallen world, all of us have had someone at some point make a promise to us and not keep that promise. We all have at some point when someone has made a promise to us that we really wanted them to hold and they didn't hold the promise. And so what do we do as humans? We tend to have the tendency then to put on everyone else, well, you won't be a promise keeper either. My dad wasn't a promise keeper, so you won't be a promise keeper. My teacher wasn't a promise keeper, so you won't be a promise keeper. But we must be reminded this Advent, God is not like that. God is not a promise breaker. God is a promise keeper. Beneath the genealogy of Jesus is an underlying promise. Notice what the text says in Joshua chapter 21 verse 45. God loves to keep promises. Not a single one of all the good promises the Lord has given to the family of Israel was left unfulfilled. For everything he had spoken came true. God is a promise maker and God is a promise maker keeper. What about Solomon when he dedicates the temple that his dad David had in mind? 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 56. What does Solomon say? Praise the Lord who's given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the wonderful promises he gave through his servant Moses. He's not just a promise maker, God is a promise keeper. Now flip over to Isaiah chapter 9. This is the most popular messianic promise that we have in Scripture. The most uh, powerful, probably, messianic prophecy. 750 years before Jesus comes to the planet, we get Isaiah. Isaiah declaring about the coming Messiah in the midst of Assyrian captivity. Notice in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. The text says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given. The government will be on his shoulders. And his name shall be what? Everlasting Father. But before Everlasting Father, we get a wonderful counselor. And before even Everlasting Father, we get Mighty God. Then we get Eternal or Everlasting Father and then Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. And on the throne of David. Everybody say David. David. That's key. That's a key promise. That's a key prophecy. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Notice this. And the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. That last statement is to answer the question of every other Jew, how will this prophecy be accomplished? How will this promise come to pass? And God says, by my own zeal. In other words, God is ecstatic to keep every promise he makes. God is is excited to fulfill his promises in the life of his children. God is ready. God is at the precipice of eternity. The zeal of the Lord is ready to accomplish it. The zeal of the Lord wants to make promises and to keep. Promises. I'm here to tell you this morning, God has never been afraid of disappointing a human being. God has never been afraid of disappointing somebody who trusts Him. Let me tell you and remind you this morning, God has never been afraid of making a promise to His covenant people and then not being able to fulfill that promise. It's the zeal of the Lord that shall accomplish this prophecy. The zeal of the Lord shall accomplish what God has spoken. Now let me, listen to me, just because God makes a promise doesn't mean He will fulfill it on your timeline. Doesn't mean he'll fulfill it on my timeline. But remind you, some promises may come true in your great-great-grandchildren's lives. And that's OK, isn't it? Part of the, the reason why Matthew chapter one is a big deal is because God is pointing back to his promise. Now flip with me to one other promise, Genesis chapter 12. This is where all the promises start. This is the very beginning of the promise. We all call this the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your relatives, your father's family. Go to the land I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless and make you famous. You'll be a blessing to others. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. Notice with contempt, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. There are three parts to the Abrahamic covenant. Land, legacy, a blessing to the nations. Land, legacy, a blessing to the nations, promised land, a legacy, and a blessing to the nations. We must understand this is what we call in Scripture a unilateral covenant. Unilateral covenant. This unilateral covenant gives us a beautiful picture of what God is like. Unilateral is another way to say an unconditional covenant. Let me tell you what an unconditional covenant is. It's when two parties come together, but only one of the two parties has any responsibility. It's when two people come to an agreement, but only one has to carry it out. The second one, doesn't matter what they do, the, the covenant's still there. This is called an unconditional unilateral covenant. Think about that. The covenant God is making with Abraham is not based on what Abraham does. It's not based on Abraham and ultimately even his behavior from this point. He believes God. It was credited to him as righteousness. We know Genesis 15, 6 tells us. But this is God holding up the end of the deal. You say, Craig, how do you know that? Fast forward three chapters to Genesis 15, and God says, I'm going to enact this covenant, Abram. Do you know how we know God is putting forth a one-sided covenant? Because Abraham is asleep when he enacts the covenant. He puts Abraham to sleep, and he passes through the halves of the animal that have been cut by by himself. Not with Abraham and you got to remember this about your God. God is a covenant-making God because He's a promise-keeping God. He's a covenant-making God because He keeps His promises. And covenant is the strongest form of promise in Scripture. So God doesn't just make promises. He binds himself to those promises. And Matthew chapter 1 points us all the way back to the fulfillment of God's promise. Listen to me. Jesus is the embodiment of the promise God made to Abram. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise God made of land, legacy, and a blessing to the nations. Because God has what? For always had in his mind, Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world for all peoples, for all nations. Now listen, when you read the genealogy of Jesus, you realize there are some really crazy scoundrels in that family tree. Can I show you a quick picture of the family tree of Jesus? They're going to show you a picture. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the family of Jesus, the tree of Jesus. Right now, my family, my wife got a new Advent book for us, and we've just started week three, which is what we start today, day 15. And this has been a really good. I'll actually recommend it for all families next year. It's a powerful, powerful book. And so we've been doing it as a family. And this week, it's interesting when you've got a sixth sixth grader and we've got a third grader and a four-year-old because this week we got to Tamar and Rahab. And the first text we had to read was the semen of a father. Right? That's the first text we read. The semen of the father with Tamar. And the father-in-law who literally... Includes now let me let me just throw most Jewish genealogies never included women. Matthew's that we read mentions five. And he's writing to a Jewish audience. Well surely you would include Jewish matriarchs Sarah, Rebecca, Leah. No, he includes five women, four of whom are not even Jewish. Mary's the only Jew. If you're writing to Jews, won't you put Rebecca in there? Leah? No, no, no. He puts Rahab, prostitute, Gentile. Tamar, literally raped by father-in-law. He puts Ruth, Moabite, who's not even a part of the family of God. Why? Because being a part of the family of God has never been about bloodlines, but about belief. And these women refused to stay outside the covenant. They believed God. So when I started telling my, four, my third grader about Rahab this week and the fact that she lied to the king so that these two spies wouldn't be killed and made this covenant with these two spies to spare her life when Jericho would be taken, we talked about her letting down the spies in the middle of the night out the wall and my third grader and her beautiful mind started immediately thinking of Rapunzel. Because Rapunzel had long hair where she let down her hair to pick up her mom. So I, I just had to take my iPhone out in our family devotion. And I took a little video of what happened this week. And I thought I'd show you a little mashup of Rapunzel and Marley. Okay, let's watch this quick video right quick. Alright, so we it's been it's been a bit messy here in our family advent because we're looking at Tamar and Rahab. And we just shared about the story of Rahab that God changed her life completely and used her in the family lineage of Jesus, right? To have Obed and then Jesse and then King David. And so these two like Rapunzel. They love Rapunzel. So Marley has a little a little presentation she'd like to do in, in lieu of Rapunzel, but Substituting Rahab.
0: Rahab, let down your spies.
1: <laughs> so what does Rapunzel say or her mom say? Let down your hair. Say it. Rahab, let down your spies. <laughs> so Rahab let down her spies and made it into the very lineage of the Son of God. Had Obed. Obed had Jesse. Jesse had... David. Next slide. Listen to me, church. Matthew's genealogy includes the outcast, the scandalous, and the foreigner because the family Jesus comes from anticipates the kind of family he's come for. Amen. The type of people he comes from is the type of people he came for. That's what the genealogy of Jesus tells us. That's what the genealogy of Jesus communicates For us. Jesus came for you and I. Now what I want to do for the next few moments is I want to have some interaction of an Old Testament text, a psalm, an epistle reading, and a gospel. So I want you to see the tension and wrestle with these passages this Advent. So these texts present to us with what I call the mystery of Christ. And as I've said many times, you've heard from myself and Pastor Chad, we gather on Sunday mornings to turn our attention to Jesus to see who God is right, and who we are and what God wants for us and what he ultimately wants for us and what we want for ourselves. So we're going to do that today by starting with an Old Testament text. Let's read Isaiah 53. This is the psalm of the suffering servant. This is a prophecy of what Jesus would accomplish for us in his coming. And I want to tell you right from the first that Christians have understood this to be a prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah 53, begin with me in verse 4. Isaiah 53 Beginning in verse 4, notice what the text says. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep, we all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the sin of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lead lamb to the slaughter, and like a sheep before her shears, is silent. He, he, Jesus did not open his mouth. Verse. Eight. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. What's this next line? Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. This passage has been understood, as I told you, from the very beginning of Christian history, to have been understood a prophecy about Jesus. It's a song celebrating who Jesus is and what he's done. But would you look at verse 10 again? From the outset of Christian history, that has been a difficult line to deal with. It pleased the Lord to crush him. What does that mean? It's made all the more mysterious when you take our psalm for today. Our psalm for today is 91. I have a Psalm 91 preached in this in this congregation. Many of you in this congregation have little doormats that say our family is covered Psalm 91, right? We use Psalm 91 as a as a token, as a scripture of God's protection. It's made almost all more mysterious to read Isaiah 53 when you put it into context with Psalm 91. Psalm 91, he was notice the text says, the one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say concerning the Lord who is my refuge and fortress, my God in whom I trust, He Himself will rescue from the bird trap, from the destructive plague. He will cover you with His feathers. You will take refuge under His wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. You won't fear the terror of the night. You won't feel the fear the error that flies by day. Look at verse 6. The plague that stalks in darkness, you won't fear the the pestilence that ravages at noon. Though a thousand fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, the pestilence will not reach you. You will only see it with your eyes and witness the punishment of the wicked because you've made the Lord my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place. No harm will come to you. No plague will come to your tent. So the psalm promises those who make God their habitation will suffer no harm. No trouble will come to you. Isaiah 53 is a song celebrating Jesus is God, and harm comes to him, and harm comes to him because God wills it. So which is it? Which is it? I want to I take you to something I've been pondering for months. Which is it? Is, is, is it going to come near my dwelling, or is it not going to come my dwelling? Is it true that if we are hiding in the Almighty, no harm can reach us? No plague can touch us? Or is it true that sometimes it's God's will to crush us? To make matters worse, before they get better, they will get better in a minute. But to make matters worse, let's throw in an epistle. Hebrews chapter 5. Follow with me verse 1 through 10. Speaking of Jesus for every high priest, taken from among men is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people, to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, he's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant or going astray. He goes on and says Jesus was a priest like this and not like this. And he goes on to say Jesus is a priest according not to Aaron, but a priest according to Melchizedek. And now go to verse 7 with me. Notice what the next, next text says. During his earthly life, he, Jesus, offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son... He learned obedience from what he was suffered. And after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who, notice, obey him. We are told Jesus is a priest according to Melchizedek, not Aaron. And one of the things, church, that has happened in Christian history, and especially Christian America over the last century, is we have become familiar with the Bible in ways that actually keep us from reading the Bible. So we have had a sense of a relationship with God that is presumed upon more than it's considered. What do you mean? We've become so familiar with Jesus that we think we know things that we don't actually know about God. One of the things I want to do before I give you a conclusion is I want you to let let you sit here for a moment and feel the anxiety, the angst that comes when you actually pay attention to what the Bible says. Don't let it be dissolved. Feel the angst. In the text I just read, we are told that Jesus is a high priest who is touched by our iniquities and pains, and in the days of his flesh, he cries out in anguish, and he is heard so that he can learn what? Obedience through the things he suffers. What kind of sense does that make? If he is God, if he is God's Son... How is he learning obedience? And how is he learning obedience through the things that he suffers? The psalm promises us that those who hide in the Almighty will not suffer any trouble. No trouble will come to your dwelling place. Though a thousand fall at your side, ten thousand will fall at your right hand. And yet here we are in Isaiah 53 reading that Jesus is crushed and God wants it. And Jesus is crying out to God and he has to learn obedience through what he suffers. How in the world did those texts make sense? What have we done? Well, mostly, I'll tell you what Christians have done is we've ignored those tensions. We've ignored them because they make us uncomfortable quickly. We mostly ignored them. We tried not to make sense of it. But listen, when we felt the pressure to make sense of it, we've tended to make sense of it by assuming that there's a kind of hierarchy of orders between God's sovereignty and God's mercy. So what we begin to do is we begin to place between... tension of the glory of God's sovereignty and we juxtapose it or we put it across from or essentially we set it against the glory of God's mercy. And what do you mean, Craig? I mean that the glory of the Father, the glory of justice, the glory of God's sovereignty always takes precedence over the glory of God's mercy, God's love, God's compassion And sometimes we know we're doing this and other times we don't know we're doing this. But when we do this, I want to suggest to you that we are implying at every turn, whether consciously or subconsciously, we are implying that the way you hold God all together, the way as a Christian you hold all this together is to suggest that there are some things that belong to God's sovereignty and justice and power, and there are other things that belong to God's compassion and forgiveness and mercy and weakness. And what matters as a Christian is that we have to try to keep the right kind of balance between them. And the way you balance them is by always letting the power take precedence over the weakness. We always let the justice take precedence over the compassion. So that the moment someone says, now you follow with me today, the moment someone says something that sounds a little bit too merciful about God, we try to balance it with some justice. So we say, God is good, but don't get too carried away. Don't get too carried away with his goodness. God loves you, comma, but Dot, 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 dot. So we've learned, because it's hard, we've learned to balance, we've learned to talk by balancing these extremes. So we make a statement, watch this, we make a statement about God suggesting that he is long-suffering and that he's reluctant to punish, but we immediately feel pressure to try to balance that with a claim. Hey, he's just, he's loving, but he won't hold off forever. That hammer that's right now paused over your head That hammer will come down. And so we read texts like today, and what we do is we group group them into one of these orders. Can I tell you what I've done most of my Christian journey? I have read Psalm 91, and I group it in the category of the Son. I read Isaiah 53, and I group it in the category of the Father in justice. And nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be more wrong. So we read Psalm 91 you make God your habitation, no harm will come near your dwelling. So that's a God who's kind, who's merciful. And then we quickly rush to balance with Isaiah 53 it pleased the Lord to crush him. It could not be more wrong, unfortunately, because that's not who God is. And the consequence of talking and thinking in those ways, trying to balance justice and mercy, trying to balance goodness and severity, trying to balance hell and heaven, is that you end up having to split the father from the son so that the father is God wanting justice, this is God wanting justice, and the son is trying to get between the father's justice and us. He can't save everybody from the drunk father, but he'll he'll just save who he can. So we begin to, through our substitutionary kind of comments and thinking, begin to pit the father against the son we begin to rupture the life of god we begin to separate one person of the trinity from the other person of the trinity that the father is the one who insists everything stays neatly in order and the son's like dad don't worry about it and so we end up with a rupture in the life of god between the Father who represents authority and power and dominion and the Son who represents submission and compassion and weakness. When we do that, that is to disorder God's own life. We separate the Son from the Father, but not only separate the Son from the Father, you ready this? We separate the creature from the Creator. And we write into the life of God and into our life with God something that I'm going to suggest to us Is called the master slave relationship. The master slave relationship. Someone has to be master, someone has to be slave. And we think that what makes that Christian is that they're both glorious. So follow with me. It is glorious to become or be a master, and it is glorious to be a slave. But the glory of the slave is to obey the master, and the glory of the master is to be obeyed by the slave. And again, we write that logic into the life of God. The father is the master, and who is the slave? The son. The father's the master, the son's the slave, and we write it into our relationship with God. God is the master, and I am the slave. And listen, on the face of it, that sounds what, like Hebrews 5 might be saying. That Jesus is what? The high priest who was touched by our infirmities. Who what? In the days of his flesh cried out in anguish and prayer. And God heard him because of his reverence. Right? And he learned what he learned through the obedience that he had to take from the Father. That once after he was perfected, he could offer eternal salvation for all. That, watch, that seems to track pretty nicely with the master-slave logic. And one of the reasons we are so attached to the master-slave logic is we think if we give God master, if we let God be God, then when we really need it, he will be there for us. I will serve you, God, and the fine print of me serving you is when I need you to do something for me that I cannot do for myself, you will come through for me. The master-slave relationship is, God, I'll do it, but the fine print of me serving you, obeying you in church planning, obeying you in what you ask of me, is that when I can't do for myself what I need to be done, you will come through for me. So I'll do for you what you want me to do, but but, but you need to understand, because I'm doing it, God, I want to remind you, when I need you to do what I cannot do, you will. And Psalm 91 fits perfectly in that category. Isaiah 53 here, Psalm 91 here. God, I'll worship you and I'll make you my dwelling place. But because I do that, you need to know, Father, I'm expecting you to do for me what those other gods will not do. So if I'm sick or someone I love is sick or someone has COVID or someone's in the hospital bed and I need you to do what I want you to do, I have been your slave. I've been the faithful slave of the master. So I need you to come through for me. I worship you, and the payoff is that you keep anything bad from happening to me. The problem is, it doesn't work like that. If you live life with your eyes open long enough, you'll realize life does not work that way. That's not how it works. And at that point, listen, at that point, it becomes very tempting to say, well, God is the master, and I'm the slave, so who am I to question? you know how many questions and conversations Meredith Mosgrove and I have had since February of this last year about this very issue? If it's not your will to heal my dad, then what's the point of even praying? Why don't I just pray for your will to be done? What's the point? And that leads to fatalism. It leads to you're the master, I'm the slave, I won't question, I'll just trust. That dehumanizes us, that defaces the character of God, and Jesus shows us in Advent There is nothing further from the truth. Now, I've got a few minutes to do a lot of work. What can we do to make sense of these scriptures if we don't think in terms of master and slave? What other logic could we apply? We end up at this point saying something along the lines of Job, where we said, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then this fatalism comes to us, and we say, God is the master, he can do what he wants. All of that, listen, I'm going to propose to us is profoundly wrong. I think it dehumanizes us. I think it dehumanizes God. It strips us of our human dignity, and it obscures the character of God. And we should know that because it's that line of thinking that underwrote the worst evils in human history. Can I explain? It is precisely that way of thinking that God is the master and we are the slaves that underwrites every evil Christians have supported, including, duh, the evil of slavery. The evil of slavery. Howard Truman, he's the mentor of Martin Luther King Jr., the father, spiritual father. I've got a picture of, of Howard Thurman. He, in my opinion, is one of the most important theologians in American history. And oftentimes in his book, he talks about his grandma, how he would read the Bible for his grandma every day of her life. And he read the Bible to her, and she would not allow, she would allow him to read any text in the Bible except Paul. He didn't realize this until in college, and he asked her, Why, Grandma, will you not allow me to read Paul. She said, because I was a young woman in world, excuse me, the Civil War, 1861 to 65, and she was born into slavery. And being born into slavery, of course, she was emancipated by Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation, but she said all of our slave owners would gather us together as slaves every week. And you know what they would do? They'd put us in our barn, they would open the Bibles, and guess what text they would pick. Paul, slaves! Obey! Your masters! To make matters worse, she said the gra- his grandma would not allow him to ever even talk about the cross. You think, what? Yeah, he said the cross for us was not. For Paul, was a, his fame was a preacher of the cross. And he said, in my world, the cross was not a symbol of redemption and forgiveness. The cross was a burning symbol of oppression because the cross belonged to the clan. So we have underwritten the worst human evil through that logic of master and slave. We've underwritten not just slavery. What about the evil of misogyny? God put an order. Men are over women. Men can do whatever they want to do with women. This happens in religious environments all across the world. Right? You can do and treat women however you want to treat women because that's God's creator. We've used that logic to protect abusive Catholic priests who've destroyed generations. This is light stuff this morning, isn't it? We've used this master-slave logic to underwrite evil. And when you think in terms of master and slave, you will always justify the powerful one. Why? No matter what they do. Because you already assume that to be powerful is the greatest good. You are born in America to think that the more power you have, the more good you are. And that any other good comes from those in power. So watch this. In the master-slave logic, there is a glory in becoming a slave. Jesus becomes a slave. But the glory of being a slave depends on the glory of being a master. And part of the reason we continue to submit to that is not only do we want power ourselves, but we want leverage with power. Because sometimes we think, well, if I can't get power, if I can't be powerful, then maybe I can at least be the kind of slave that the powerful favors. So the sin within us, watch this, the sin within us is caught in this ambition to either have power or at least have access to power through our slavery. And nothing is more antichrist than that. It destroys our human dignity. It defaces God and the character of God. It underwrites death and not life. It underwrites evil, not good. It underwrites darkness, not light. So we have to break with it. Well, how do we break with it? We break with it by looking at Jesus at Christmas. And we realize, watch this, that as Jesus says, he is the master who is a slave. Next slide, listen. He is not a slave who has a master, he is the master who is a slave. Listen to Jesus in Mark chapter 10. This is our gospel text, verse 42 through 45. Jesus says these words. Jesus called them and said, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom recognize as the rulers lorded over them and their great ones are tyrants, but it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first must be slave of all. Watch this. For the Son of Man came not to be served. Now that sounds like a technique real quick. Whoever wishes to be first must be slave. That sounds like a technique. Start low, God will promote you. No, no, that is antichrist. The goal here is not to be promoted. That's not the goal. The goal in this text is not to be a master. It's not to be a master. He goes on and says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You ready, church? God not only dignifies slavery, he exposes mastery as a lie. That's how he liberates us from our lust for power. So watch this. God comes in Christmas, in the flesh, not to be served, but to serve. This is, I think, the hardest truth for us. Are you ready? The hardest truth for us Western minds to realize. To get our minds around the fact that we are trying to serve a God who wants to serve us. We're trying to treat God as if he's our master when that is literally the last thing God is interested in being. In Philippians chapter 2, how do you know this? We are told Jesus comes to us. He empties himself. It's called canonic Christology. He pours himself into human life. And when he pours himself into human life in the form of a slave... We are not being told that God loves us so much he's willing to humiliate himself for us. We are not being told that God, even though he is a master, is willing to disguise himself as a slave. We are being told that the fullness of God can only come among us in the form of a slave because the form of a master is too small for God. The form of a master is not big enough to encapsulate who he is. The form of a master is too minuscule. There is no one on earth less like God than the king. There is no one on earth less like the character of God than the one who has power. The king is the one who's furthest from the image of God, not the nearest. The one who is nearest to the image of God is that little suckling baby. The one who is nearest to the image of God is the one that's powerless. The one who is nearest to the image of God and the fullness of God is the one that's the least of these. Listen, church, the greatest among us in America are the, first from, are the furthest from the kingdom of God. Jesus says this to everyone at every turn in the Gospels. You don't get it, he says. What does he say in Matthew 21? The prostitutes and the tax collectors will enter the kingdom of God before you. What does he say? If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must become like this little child. Y'all, in the ancient world, children were not valued. There is no sentimentality in the ancient world. You know what children were? They were slaves. They had no value. They were slaves. That's what made it scandalous for Jesus to bless the children. And he says, if you want to become like or enter the kingdom of God, you must become like the child. So when Jesus says you must become like one of these little ones, he's saying you must become as insignificant and as unimportant, as powerless and fragile as this little child that is somebody else's slave. And if you don't do that, you can't even enter the kingdom of God. You can't even make entrance. Now, how are we getting this so wrong in America? Because we're trying to bring Christ into the master-slave relationship rather than letting Christ free us from it. So how else can we respond to these texts then? we look back at Hebrews chapter 5. What else might be happening if it's not the logic of mastery and slave? What if Jesus means what he says when he says, I'm not your master, but I'm the Lord Who serves you? What if Jesus meant what he said when he said, I no longer call you slaves because slaves don't know what their masters are doing? I call you friends. What if he actually meant that? What if he meant that? I'm your Lord as the one who sustains you and gives you life, and I perfect your life. Why? Because I need nothing from you. See, the problem, church, with the master slave relationship is that the master is the one who has needs. And because the master has needs, there has to be slaves who sacrifice for those needs. The master's needs need to be met, so the slave sacrifices. But Jesus reveals that God is not at all like that because God has no needs. That's why it's faulty to think about it that way. God does not a master who has needs. He doesn't need my obedience. Did you know God doesn't need my devotion to do what he be, be himself? God doesn't, certainly doesn't need my preaching. Somebody said amen. There's no need in God. And he is the one who makes the sacrifice. Does does he ask somebody else to make the sacrifice as the slave? No, he is. He's the one who what? Washes our feet. He's the one who bears responsibility for us. So go back to Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Spoiler alert. Wait. No, he wasn't heard. There may be somebody here who doesn't know this. He dies. We were driving in the car yesterday. I said, "Mary, let's just think about this for a moment. He cries to the one who can save him from death, and he's heard, and yet he dies. This is the mystery of Christmas that shatters the master-slave relationship. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane said, Lord, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And it turns out to not be possible. And he dies on a cross between two thieves. And what's coming out of him is forgiveness for those who are doing him wrong. And so what are we being told when we're told he's crying out to be delivered from death and he was heard? Well, this is a mystery. And again, I think it's the mystery that shatters this logic. It shatters the lie that God has needs that we must meet by sacrificing for him. Jesus is heard, and he learns obedience through what he suffers. Listen to me, church. This is the heart of Christian witness. I'm going to close this down, but listen to me. Jesus is the fullness of the Father living a human life. Jesus is not the slave of the Father. He is the Son who is the fullness of the Father. There is no separation between the Father and Son. We would be called heretics in the first, second, third, there is no difference between father and son, and the same intimacy the son has with the father is the intimacy the creature has with the creator. That in Jesus, the divine and the human are perfectly in communion without being mixed and without being confused. Next slide. Jesus lives the human life divinely, and he lives the divine life humanly. There's no discord in the sight of Jesus. The relation of divine and human are in perfect harmony because in Jesus' relationship to the Father, there's full equality and absolute transparency. So listen to me, church. The Son is not less than the Father, and the Father is not greater than the Son. The Son and the Father are one, God of God, light of light, God, very God of very God. And the Son and the Father are co-equal, they're co-eternal, they're identical in every way, except that the Father is the Father and the Son is the Son. The intimate, unbroken relationship they share is the same relationship you and I have with God. And it's the relationship you and I have with God because Jesus accomplished it in his life. That what happens, watch this church, what happens in the life of Jesus is he brings the divine and the human into perfect intimacy. So just picture the cross. Look, just picture the cross right here. The arms of the cross intersects at that vertical beam. And at the point of that intersection, at that intersection is where you and I live as humans, Where the divine and the human, the eternal and the temporal, they meet. They come together perfectly at one. That's the word atonement. We always talk about the atonement of Jesus. You know what that means? We are perfectly at one in him. Perfectly at one in him. Meaning there's no mixture. Between us and God, but there's also no rivalry between us and God. There's no rivalry between God being God and me being me, which is why I told you a few weeks ago in Genesis chapter or Galatians chapter five, when we're given the list of the fruit of the Spirit, what's the culmination of the fruit of the Spirit? Self-control, because where God is, you are. Where God is, I am. Where God is most present, you are most yourself. God is not like the demons. The demons possess and they strip you of your choice and your agency and your personality. They strip you of your mind. Where God is present, you are uniquely you. Where God is most present, you are fully you. You are really you. You say, how is that possible? Because that's what Jesus lives. And he lives it, watch this church, into death. Into death. Think about what it means to say that Jesus cried out and was heard. Casey, do you want to come play keys. See, as long as you hold to the master-slave relationship, you hold to it because of your fear of death. Because what the master needs, thank you, jess what the master needs more than anything else is to be protected from dying. So my students this week, y'all, I have apologetics at the school I teach, Arrows. So I had them end the semester by writing psalms. I tried to develop their minds throughout the semester to get them critically to think about text and to read the scripture and to read psalms with open mind and then I jogged them into an experiment that, that finished out the semester. So I've taken all of these and I want you to listen to what Gen Z is thinking about life and death right now. I want you to see if maybe the message of Jesus could speak to this generation right now. I've taken a couple excerpts. These are a couple of the excerpts. Next slide. Notice what the text in psalms says. One ends them, his psalm with them. We will will live on forever without pain whatsoever. One of my students who has literally 100 in the class ends and says death is confusing as to why good people die. The next one wrote, even though the shadows remain, you took their power away. You are the victor over evil. Death and pain will be no more. Why are we afraid of death? We're afraid of death, and we are so afraid of death that we try to do all that we can to stave off death. And the Scripture tells us that masters die too. What does the Old Testament say? Full this night, your soul is required of you. Nebuchadnezzar having a party. Belshazzar, masters die too. And here's what Jesus did. Are you ready? He faced death down, and he trusts the God who's able to save him from death, not from dying but from death. And watch this. Watch this. Here's the glory of the gospel. Here's the glory of the gospel. Our God is a God who does not have to keep us from dying because He can destroy death itself. And Jesus is not kept from dying. He's kept in dying. And He's brought forth from the grave. But He's not just brought forth from the grave by Himself. He's brought forth from the grave with everyone else whom death has claimed, so when we say he was her because of his reverence, he dies. Yeah, he dies, but death does not hold him. So, what 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 is the text saying to us? What's what's actually happening? Jesus does not is not kept from dying because he can ultimately through the Father destroy death himself. He's kept in dying. He's brought from the grave. And he's brought back from the grave with everyone else whom death has claimed. So watch this. In the garden, Jesus says, I don't want to die if I don't have to. Listen, church, it's okay and right to not want to die. But Jesus says, God, I'm going to cling to you. And if you go into death, I'm going to cling to you. And so you know what God does? God goes into death. And Jesus clings to him even in death. And what happens is because God is the creator of all things, death dies Nothing happens to God, church. Listen to me. Whatever seems to happen to God actually happens to the thing that seems to be happening. When Jesus is baptized in the water of Jordan, he is he is not washed clean of his sins. The water is made whole. When the leper touches Jesus, Jesus is not made sick. The leper is healed. When he dies, he's not dead. Death dies. Nothing happens to our God. He happens to whatever pretends to happen to him. So when Jesus cries out to the Father and says keep me Father from dying. He's not kept from dying but he's kept from death. And in his dying death dies. This is the incarnation. This is the glory of the gospel. He tramples down death by death. And so what happens in Jesus is he clings to God in death and God who is life destroys death destroying death, he frees everyone death has claimed. Y'all, when we grasp this, or better yet, when it grasps us, the world will look differently, and there will be no need to kill our enemies. Listen to me. God isn't the God who does not keep us from dying, but he saves us from death. Did you hear what happened this week in Mesquite, Texas? It's actually last Friday when a young father of three was murdered by a man in a domestic disturbance. And the cop shows up and this man who is troubled takes the gun from his wife and shoots the father. They had the father who is the chief, the police. They had his funeral this week in Mesquite, Texas, Lake Point Church. The daughter of this police officer gets up and she wants to share at the funeral. She wants to communicate what she feels about her dad who's just been slayed. Watch this clip. And as we do, I want the band to come watch and listen to the words of this young girl out of the mouths of babes. Watch this real quick.
0: I remember having conversations with my dad about him losing friends and officers in the line of duty. I have heard all the stories you can think of, but I've always had such a hard time with how the suspect is dealt with. Not that I didn't think there should be justice served, but my heart always ached for those who don't know Jesus. Their actions being a reflection of that. I was always told that I would feel differently if it happened to me, but as it's happened to my own father, I think I still feel the same. There has been anger, sadness, grief, and confusion. And part of me wishes I could despise the man who did this to my father, but I can't get any, of, any part of my heart to hate him. All that I can find is myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. I thought this might change if the man continued to live, but when I heard the news that he was in stable condition, part of me was relieved. My prayer is that someday down the road, I'd get to spend some time with the man who shot my father. Not to scream at him, not to yell at him, not to scold him, simply to tell him about Jesus.
1: That will change the world. Go find a secular worldview see if it has the power to take a young daughter and speak life and love and forgiveness over a man who slayed her dad five days earlier. When you know what Jesus knew in the garden, you know nothing and no one can do anything to you. You don't have to kill them. You can speak forgiveness right from that place. Why? Why?